Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. And um, up next, what we're going to do is we are going to hold off on Rahul Grijalva for a few moments, and we're going to introduce right now somebody who is an incredible champion. And she got into the DNC thanks to the progressive surge that came with the 2016 um, Bernie Sanders campaign and the rise of electoral progressive politics in the United States of America. And like she has always done since I've known her, and I've known her as a comrade around Southern California, as it were, for the past, uh, oh boy, what is it now, Susie, 15, 17 years, she gets to work. And she got to work forming the first ever DNC Poverty Council. Now, somewhere in the era of neoliberalism, somehow poverty became a bad word in the upper echelons of the Democratic Party. It would not be mentioned. You can go back and look at recent Democratic platforms, and it's stunning. The word is barely mentioned and almost always around poverty programs supporting, for instance, churches in order to be able to address poverty. And, um, you know, there are times when just saying the word is really, really, really important. And this was one of them. And Susie got in there and forged to work to build the first ever DNC. Well, maybe there was one in previous generations, but anytime recently, the first oh. poverty council of the DNC. And they fought her and she fought back. She held her ground. They fought against her. They sort of was a little trickery even involved. And lo and behold, Susie, uh, with help from activists around the country, but with Susie really holding her ground, forged the first ever DNC Poverty Council and met a few sessions ago of the DNC. And today, this morning, had a big meeting. And so, Susie, congratulations on achieving the DNC Poverty Council. Maybe you want to let people know what that was about. But even first off, how did the meeting go this morning? It went great. I mean, it was fantastic. We had... Um, uh, from the congressional end of it, we had um, Barbara Lee, Karen Bass, and Maxine Waters, um, which was fantastic. And Barbara Lee, Michael Lighty will be happy to know that Barbara Lee was, I think, one of the first speakers at the DNC to express her support for Medicare for All. <laughs> and uh, Robert Rice did at the end. So it was it was good. They kind of bookended each other. Um, so, you know, it's it's you know, the, the issue really is that we are really out of time uh, on poverty issues. We um, already have over 500,000 people who are homeless in uh, the country. We have over 151,000 who are homeless uh, just in California. And this is before COVID. Um, and what we're looking at, um, given the fact that there are millions and millions of people who are out of work, is just massive evictions, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard about. There have been a lot of campaigns um, to cancel rent, to provide, um, you know, mortgage forbearance and rent cancellation at the same time. Um, and these have been moving through state legislatures, um, through governors. And um, the issue is just that we are not actually making enough progress. And so the Aspen Institute came out with a study a couple of weeks ago, and they basically have showed that unless there is robust and swift intervention, which are their words, that we are looking at 30 to 40 million people in America who could be at risk of eviction in the next several months. And 4 million of those would be in California alone. 365,000 in in Los Angeles alone. Um, and so we're looking at doubling, you know, our homeless population just in one county. 
So we're really out of time. We're going to run out of food uh, as people um, fall into homelessness and they run through whatever savings that they have. And we see that we're already pulling back on unemployment. Um, it becomes a huge problem uh, because, you know, when people are already living paycheck to paycheck, when that paycheck stops coming, what do they do? And where do they go? And where are people supposed to live? So I am every day fighting back these large equity firms and corporate developers who have been suing our cities because they have been trying to provide rent relief for renters who may not be under rent control. And so there is a battle going on in the courts. There's a battle going on with our local city councils, um, with our county supervisors, and some of these corporate landlords who are coming in and buying up many, many neighborhoods, jacking up the price. And now they are trying to prevent tenants who have been impacted by COVID-19 from getting any kind of relief. So if anywhere there was a struggle, you know, as we see with most of these issues that we're working on as progressives, if anywhere there is a struggle now between rich and poor, and these are people who are giving tens of millions of dollars to the Trump administration, to the campaign, I should say, um, and they have been doing this since 2016. Um, they are very wealthy. They are empowered by having a Republican president, by having a developer president, and they have just been pouring money into those coffers. And I've been looking, I've been watching this because um, I'm working on Proposition 21, which is a rent control initiative in California. And we have been tracking how much money has been uh, donated to Trump's campaign by these very wealthy developers who have now concentrated housing and who basically um, will prevail if a lot of folks get evicted because some of the folks who get evicted will be evicted from mom and pop, small mom and pops or in neighborhoods that they're trying to buy up and come in and speculate. So um, we're, so th this is just, you know, probably the worst situation we've ever been in in our lifetime, um, given the unemployment, given that there's no certainty at all uh, in terms of where we are going as a country. Um, if something passes the House, there's no guarantee it's going to pass the Senate. Certainly no guarantee it's going to be signed into law. That's left us with states and counties and municipalities, um, you know, other municipalities. And it's we're we're losing out. I mean, we're really losing. So um, I just hope for the sake of everyone out there who is worried that they are not going to be able to stay in their homes, that there's some kind of action that can be taken. Um, you know, I want progressives to do a little more on these issues, of course, right, right. Um, because nothing, nothing is going to, um, all of our issues will fall by the wayside as our activists and the people who are in the progressive movement fall into homelessness. When, once you're homeless or, you know, on the verge of becoming homeless, your every day is day-to-day -day survival, where your food is coming from. Uh, where your housing is coming from. Are you going to be able to keep your housing? Um, and, and we, you know, everything you've 
to focus on this eventually. So I think it would be great to do it now as opposed to after people um, have been evicted and are homeless. Um, you know, we're seeing the same thing with COVID-19. A lot of talk in every single one, you know, from every speaker and in every single one of our panels about the gross inequities. Um, I am on the health commission for the city of Los Angeles. <clears throat> We've been tracking mortality rates, low-income communities, communities of color, and it's just alarming. You know, our from our first responders to people who, um, you know, cannot stay home and, and work from Zoom, um, they are the ones who are getting hit the worst. Our communities of color, I mean, knowing this and not providing the PPE equipment, not providing the testing, not moving into these neighborhoods, um, not doing social distancing for people who are in these homeless enclaves and homeless encampments, places like Skid Row, where there's no social distancing, no social distancing signs. And we're already seeing a lot of folks um, you know, who are contracting it. And there have been three outbreaks um, just on Skid Row alone. And there have been outbreaks all over the country. Um, we can see that people who uh, live at or below the poverty level, and, and I can say that now, even for the millions of workers now who are uh, not getting a paycheck and haven't for several months, it's they're falling into this as well. Um, that, you know, we are in a crisis like you wouldn't believe, you know. And I asked Robert Reich, I said, look, you know, when we look at the countries that are doing well, uh, better than us, better than us in, in poverty, better, better than us in child poverty, 25, 26 countries better than us, um, time and time again in every single one of these studies. Um, most of those countries that are doing better than us are social democracies that pr provide cradle to grave services, that provide Medicare for all, that provide, you know, 90% of your income and in unemployment, not 45% like we have here. And so we need to look at changing this entire system um, because what we are going to see is, to, I mean, what we're, we're seeing already, I should say, you know, given the, the lines at the food bank, is just depression level unemployment, depression level um, uh, needs at, uh, you know, in food lines and in food banks. Um, and a lot of people will be homeless. And unfortunately, a lot of these properties are owned by these humongous corporate, you know, corporate landlords and equity firms um, that have, you know, that, that basically benefit as if it gets worse, they actually benefit off of that because they will pick up more and more properties. They can hold on to them um, and they don't need to move anything. They don't need to move any properties. They don't need to do anything. So it, this really is a checkmate on the floor. Um, and people need to understand that. And it's like, you know, ringing the alarm bells now for 15 years. And Alan, you and I have known each other for 21 years, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, ringing the alarm bells for, for 15 years. And it's come to this now where we have no safety net in place for low-income communities. We have uh, no way to get people into housing. We apparently have no way to keep them from being evicted. Um, and and the corporations have played this beautifully from their perspective um, because they have everything tied up 
in various um, different types of laws that they have gotten passed at the state level, at um, the local level, and it's uh, it's very disturbing. And and I can see a future where we're really because I know that we focus a lot on on congressional races and that kind of thing, but we really need to start at the local level too because as things start to shift to the local level for people to get help, these um, equity firms and these corporate landlords are going to be running candidates. And they have been very clear that they are going to start running candidates who don't like rent control, who believe that, you know, jacking up rent and allowing these corporations to just come in and buy up whole neighborhoods are going to be okay. And they're all going to be greenlit if we don't play in that field. Well, thank you so much, Susie Shannon. You are a true hero to progressives. You are somebody who gets in. And again, PDA since its inception has had an inside-outside game. And you're right, we do go back quite a way. And you have always played the inside-outside game. And you are proof of the necessity of the inside game. For those people who are outside activists, outside the Democratic Party, as you can see from Susie's testimony, it is absolutely a human necessity that we engage with the people who do create public policy. I mean, this is a very broad stroke generalization, but very true in modern technological societies. The state has tremendous power and creates the parameters of the society in which we live and how we operate. The free market is, a, again, a state construction as well in terms of regulations and laws. It's not a free market, it's a state constructed market. And so we need to have people on the inside. We need to have people fighting on the inside like Susie, who know the details, who can bring out the information to us. And it is, I'm very honored to have you as a partner in our role with PDA, Susie Shannon. So thank you so much. Um, I do wanna find out, and it's great to see the chat room be so incredibly vibrant, uh, but it's not the most effective way for me to get messages from the production staff. Has Jim Hightower arrived? I do not see him. And absent a note that Jim Hightower has arrived, why don't we play a very powerful video that we received from Representative Rahul Grijalva? Of course, um, Susie did make reference to, and we have throughout the days to, the unique situation that we're all living in, the terrible situation, the true tragedy that we have of COVID-19 in the world and the extra tragedy of the mismanagement of it in the United States. We are happy to report that Representative Grijalva, who of course has come down with the virus, is doing well and is recovering, and he was able to submit this video just yesterday to us. I must say hello to my PDA friends and, uh, and to the online forum and discussions that you're having at a very important time. Uh, no doubt the election coming up is a, a bellwether of many things and certainly for progressive uh, politics as a whole. Uh, we have got to defeat Trump's Trump. The, the fascist tendencies and initiatives that he's undertaking are, are, are the biggest threat that we've seen, not only to the issue of democracy, but to the issue of every kind of cause and issue that we've been fighting for for decades. He has to be defeated, and then the work begins for us to begin to initiate and implement in the conscience not only of the American people, but of Congress and elected officials, the progressive agenda. And one of those, you know, I, I really feel that this pandemic has, has opened up, I hope, to everyone 
a real look at what this country needs to do. We cannot merely recover and rebuild from the health crisis and the economic crisis and merely go back to the status quo. That is not going to fix the problems. It is not going to deal with disparity. It's not going to deal with systemic racism. It is not going to deal with environmental degradation. It is not going to deal with protecting uh, vital retirement programs like Social Security. It is not going to provide uh, the health care for all that we all desperately need in this country. And this pandemic has shown that. Going forward, I think the initiatives that come out of this recovery have to be broad, they have to be deep, and they have to be change agents. Uh, if, if we're going to deal with uh, the recovery and rebuilding our economy, it has to be fair, it has to be equitable, and it can't leave anybody behind. And those are all legislative initiatives that carry with it the progressive agenda that we have all been talking about. This is not an ideological battle. This is a practical issue, an issue that requires all of us to, to, to show the American people that our policies are correct, that they've been right, and that they continue to be right. And so going forward, I look forward to working with PDA to defeat Trump, and to initiate an opportunity for progressive politics that we haven't had in this country in a very long time. Thank you. And I am so grateful for that message and so grateful to see Representative Grijalva look so strong, look so healthy. Um, he, when I became executive director of PDA, he was one of the instantly most welcoming members of Congress. Um, his office is as beautiful as the backdrop behind them. And, um, and he's just a beautiful soul and a great fighter for progressive causes, causes. And it's great to see him looking so good there. And it's great to know that he's going to be back and back in the fight and we'll be with him all the way. So we, here's the housekeeping we have right now. By the way, I see other members from the previous panels are staying on. And we're going to, oh, if you want to stay on, we'll incorporate people as we have a free-flowing conversation now. Uh, Bill Fletcher Jr. is arriving at a time certain at the bottom of the hour. Uh, Kara Eastman's going to come on around that time, too. We'll fit them in in that 15-minute slot. Right now, we have Michael Lighty and Tom Hartman are uh, up next. And uh, let me first introduce Michael Lighty. Michael Lighty, of course, is not only one of the great champions of universal single-payer health care uh, in the United States of America and a, just a fearless advocate for that, I believe he is also, uh, like, like Joseph Spermolar, one of the great people who really understands the lay of the land of where the progressive movement is in the country right now, how we can build it, what we need to do to build it, and to not have any kind of, have an unflinching attitude towards sticking to what we stand for, what we believe in, calling for it, constructing the right public policy to achieve it, and to build the movements necessary to grow political power. Michael Lighty, Tom Hartman, you're on deck. Michael Lighty, your thoughts on the fourth day through three days of the DNC, the progressive movement going forward, how we build it, your thoughts. Hey, thanks a lot, Alan, and, and thank you for that introduction. I just got to give a shout out. Uh, it's, it's such an honor to be at um, Progressive Central. I think it's my fourth, and uh, it is tough not to gather in person. Uh, we have to remember Tim Carpenter Presente, and... Uh, I would start with, of course, the famous Dylan lyric in his honor, yes, we are tangled up in blue. Mm -hmm. I, um, I think the Democratic Convention's irrelevant. 
I think that um, it's bread and circus that we should ignore. We should pay attention to what uh, the Biden Biden himself says and his key advisors say. They've been doing this for 30 years. They're not going to reinvent themselves, and we're not going to reinvent them. I think we should start, for example, Alan, with restore the soul of America. We haven't really analyzed that phrase. Does he mean the soul that, that existed when the country was birthed in empire and genocide? Or the soul that was uh, covered in the blood and enslavement of black people? Or the uh, codification and enforcement of white supremacy and labor exploitation by black and white people by the white Southern plantation class for 400 years? interrupted by reconstruction in the civil rights movement, but then gave us residential segregation, ultimately mass incarceration, the militarization of police, and the senator from Delaware was proud to serve with the representatives of that tradition and eulogize them when they died. We then, of course, have lived through an era of finance capitalism. Is that the soul that we need to restore where the 1% took everything? literally left workers with nothing since 1980. I don't, that restoration sounds very problematic to me. I think we should listen when Anita Dunn, his chief strategist says, we're going, he believes he can work with anybody. And he mm -hmm. believes in bipartisanship. That's a cover for things like the grand bargain mm -hmm. that he helped push during the Obama administration. When Ted Kaufman says, we're not, there's the pantry is bare. We're going to do limited uh, stimulus, limited investment. And they walk that back by saying, oh, no, we're going to do short term. That's not a walk back. That's a reinforcement. When Biden says, I'm not going to introduce uh, legislation to change corporate behavior, take him at his word. When he says Medicare for all will not get on his desk, take him at his word that that's his intent. When Cecilia Munoz, a poet that former domestic policy advisor for President Obama, went to the platform hearing to oppose expansion of authority for state single payer and oppose Medicare for all. Assume that is their position. If, if the Hill reports that they're just going to revive the uh, ACA reform bill that the House passed, which subsidizes insurance companies at a time when they have made record profits as 170,000 Americans have died, take them at their word. And when they remove the uh, provision for, you know, against fossil fuel subsidies, saying that they would continue those subsidies, take them at their word. And what we're, uh, so we're not gonna change them. What we need to do is create an alternative political environment that forces them to enact our agenda. And that alternative political environment comes from forcing the investor class to stop exploiting fossil fuels, force the investors to keep the fossil fuels in the ground, expose the health insurance industry for the death machine it is, that makes profit as it kills people so that Democrats in Congress can't hide behind them. As Vincent Ford said at a, at a recent uh, Bernie Delegates Network meeting, members of Congress who signed on to uh, H.R. 1384 told him they're not going to vote for it because the donors and the leadership don't want them to. We're not going to change that on a conference call with Nancy Pelosi every week. 
We're going to change that by creating a mass movement that exposes the healthcare industry. And it's not, what I want to say is let's go beyond symbolic militancy and build a strategic movement with the capacity to force change. I, I have huge respect for Representative Grijalva. Thank God he is okay. I have huge respect for the other members of Congress and the Progressive Caucus, but they are not the movement leaders. And we have been somewhat um, overly influenced by the Bernie campaign in the sense that the inside game has come to predominate, that elected officials are taking the place of movement leaders. And if Black Lives Matter uprising has taught us anything, it's that the movement is led differently and is le we all have a role to play and those movement leaders are different from members of Congress who ultimately, let us not forget, if you're a progressive member of Congress, you got to raise $300,000 or more every cycle to have a leadership position. We have to understand why does the Congressional Black Caucus take so much corporate money? Because they come from poor districts where they can't raise that kind of money. But imagine we're in this situation. How do we change the fact that Representative Clyburn can take a million dollars from pharma when four hospitals in his district close since the Affordable Care Act was enacted in 2010? That's unacceptable. We have to, ch and then he opposes Medicare for all. We have to change the political context so that is no longer possible. And that means building that movement capacity. And I let's register voters. Let's go out there and say yes, vote for these down ballot supporters uh, in the state house, or vote for schools and communities first in California. Vote for these progressive people and vote for Biden Harris. But afterwards, we're going to take those people that we have reached out to and built alliances from and organized and organize a movement not led by members of Congress and what were constrained by the congressional leadership that they say is possible, but to create an agenda that we hold them accountable to. And that outside strategy, I think, is at the heart of our project. I think you're muted. Sorry. I am. Michael, I hope you can stay as long as you can, because you have just put a very solid stake into a pathway forward that, you know, it's a difficult, it's a difficult terrain, of course, to relate to, to, to maintain the relationships we have. You know, um, I lost a dear comrade, someone who I've rarely mentioned. I actually want to just sort of uh, mention him now. Got my name is Antonio Gonzalez, who was the head of something called the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project. And he was a very, very close ally of mine. Um, in left radical politics in Southern California. And unfortunately he died way before his time, before I became ED. And he did say to me, it has, the day that Grijalva came into KPFK, that Grijalva, he actually said, Raul, Raul's one of us. And there are only about 12 of them. Progressive <laughs> Central, right? In the Progressive uh, Caucus. And, and um, so you've laid a really powerful stake. And so I wanted you to stick around. now. Tom Hartman, I want to introduce and then go to Bill Fletcher, who was time certain at the bottom of the hour. Tom, if you can come on right now, say hello. And if I can ask, uh, first of all, say hi to everybody, Tom Hartman. Most people I'm sure know who you are, host of the Tom hi, Hartman. Hi, everybody. Hey, Tom, would you be okay if we allowed uh, Bill Fletcher to jump the queue right now? Because Bill has to go by the quarter before the hour, and I want him to get to stretch out. I'm fine right. with whatever you want to do, Alan. I'm oh, here. thank you. Thank you. I do appreciate it. And so we're going to go to Bill Flesher Jr., because I know Bill has a really strict time constraint, and we're running a little bit behind. 
Um, and of course, anytime Clem Dalinoff comes in, we can incorporate him as well. But we'll go to Tom afterwards. We're looking out for Kara Eastman joining us, Alex Morris joining us. Uh, they'll both be very quick. But Dr. Bill Fletcher, the question, I'm sure you just heard Michael Lighty. The question in this is uh, basically what have you thought of the Democratic Convention so far? And what do you feel is the path forward, forward in terms of building the progressive movement when at least in its electoral configuration, it's stronger now than it has been any time this century into a winning political formation. Yes, winning so that it transforms the society. Yes, to the degree even which we move beyond neoliberal capitalism. I mean, is this even possible in your imagination? And what are your thoughts? And I'm very honored to introduce uh, Bill Fletcher Jr. I know him from so many different realms. I'm not quite sure how to be succinct about his, um, uh, his uh, bio that I cite. Uh, but he has just been one of the great uh, voices and uh, just uh, under, people who understands the contemporary progressive movement since I have been engaged in these kind of dialogues for the past few decades. So uh, Bill Fletcher Jr., welcome. Thank you, Alan. Thanks very much. Um, it's a pleasure and honor to be here. And you're the first, uh, you all are the first people to see me after my haircut, uh, my hair hasn't had not been as long in decades. And I finally broke down and got it cut. So uh, I can stop wearing hats for a little while. Um, I, I guess what I wanna do uh, with my limited time, I think I have about 15 minutes, um, is in trying to answer the question that Alan posed, um, I, I wanna say a few things. Uh, about the moment we're in, um, that that there's a there's a term that I stumbled across a few months ago that described the period that we're in as a cold civil war. I don't remember who it was that used the term, but I thought as soon as I heard it, I said, "This is exactly how I would describe this." And that, and in fact, that there are forces uh, afoot that want to make it a hot civil war. Um, and that when, so, so my first point is that between now and November, um, progressive forces need to be thinking about what do we do to forestall a coup uh, or um, other kinds of shenanigans that could come out of this administration. And, uh, and this should be something that preoccupies groups like PDA and others, and where we're not just thinking about legal teams, as in what happened in 2000 in Florida, but where we're thinking about how do we start organizing and preparing brigades of people to help with voter registration, uh, uh, turnout, uh, security at polling places, um, you know, demands on the postal service, et cetera. And then if there's shenanigans on election day, how do we respond? Uh, and, including uh, some of the things that Francis Fox Piven and, and Deepak Barvaga have written about, uh, we've got to really be thinking along with other progressive forces about making it impossible for a sort of coup regime to become normalized. Um, 
So that's point number one. Now, how do we do that? Well, part of what I think is desperately needed at this moment is a people's anti-repression coalition. And uh, that has a focus on, um, you know, getting troops and DHS uh, folks out of our cities, uh, addressing the uh, lynchings uh, that have happened and getting justice for those, um, addressing the issue of a complete rethinking of law enforcement, uh, you know, rethinking, um, reorganizing, reallocation, demilitarizing, um, ensuring voting rights and fighting, um, you know, uh, against austerity, uh, which is, you know, something that has been rearing its ugly head once again. So I would say very immediately, that's what we need to be concentrating on. Um, now, longer term, um, longer term, we're engaged in a, the building of an anti-zombie alliance. Now, as a student of zombieism, uh, I can tell you a few things about zombies. Uh, one of the things about zombies is that once people become zombies, they never become humans again. And you can study that. It's written in books, right? And, uh, and, the, um, and the zombies that we're facing are the, the core of Trump's base. And we should be very, very clear that they are zombies. They are not part of the people. They are not part of our potential base. They are enemies. They are enemy troops. Uh, they're, the effect, in effect, the Confederate soldiers, um, and that while one may have sentiments for individuals, as I'm sure happened in the Civil War, our objective is not to try to convince the uh, Confederate troops, you know, on a one-on-one -on -one basis to come over to our side. Uh, we've got to understand that these zombies are very consolidated in their, in their views, that we can see this time and again, that no matter what comes up, no matter what crime is revealed, the zombies continue to rally to Trump. Um, and, and so the, the notion that is often articulated uh, on a sort of humanistic, moralistic basis that we have to be, you know, very open and try to win these people over, I'd say forget it. They're not our base. Um, there are people that were confused that voted for Trump because they were angry or whatever. I'm not talking about those people. So, so we basically are creating an anti-zombie alliance. And the good news is that most of the people in the United States aren't zombies. And they are definitely inclined in our direction. The problem is that we have insufficient organization to speak to the task. And so this goes to uh, the major thing that I want to emphasize. The framework that we really have to be emphasizing is uh, new majority which also happens to be the name of a couple of organizations like New Virginia Majority. But I think that we've got to be articulating that, that we're the voice of the new majority. Now, let me explain how that differs from the 99% formulation. The 99% formulation was cute, but it was completely inaccurate. We're not up against 1%. We're up against at least 20% of the population. And, and see, when you're only up against 1%, then you can exaggerate what you're able to do, uh, to even when you're disorganized. When you recognize that you're dealing with 25 to 30% of the population, 
that ends up being the social base of the top 1%, then it's a different thing. And that's when organization becomes critical. So we need to be formulating our work as the voice of the new majority. And that to me means that organizations like PDA need to engage immediately in discussions with the Working Families Party, with the new Virginia majority, the new Florida majority, and others about building some sort of front. Now, this this front may be in the immediate part of this People's Anti-Repression Coalition that I was discussing before, but longer term, it really is a fight, uh, a front that's aimed at fighting for governing power. In other words, we need to really be fighting to take over cities, counties, and states, and um, and not just backing Democrats who we happen to like and feel sympathetic to, but really identifying our own candidates and carrying out this battle over the over the next number of months and years, assuming that we have that time. Um, the the platform for this is certainly contained within the notion of the Green New Deal. And if we look at that very broadly, we have a basis for what I think is a very broad front uh, where we can win and where people are looking for leadership. Now, here's my final point in the interest of time, because Alan, I wasn't sure whether you wanted to have a time for questions or comments or responses back to me. Um, But I, I feel that One of the things about, well, let me put it like this. For a number of years, most of us have been feeling a profound level of anxiety about what's going on in the world and in this country. And I would argue that at the core of that anxiety is the coming together of two dramatic crises, the environmental crisis and the economic crisis. An economic crisis isn't just about uh, the the temporary downturn in the economy, but it really is about overproduction and overaccumulation. It really is about the financial uh, manipulations and speculation. And that and and the um, uh, environmental crisis in a neoliberal environment has led to a crisis in the legitimacy of the democratic capitalist state, not just in the United States, but you see it around the world. And in that crisis, a number of things can happen. And we've witnessed some of it. The the growth of right-wing populist movements, including but not limited to neo-fascists, that had been entering into this crisis of state legitimacy and basically saying, the state is not serving you, whoever they happen to be targeting. Um, and it's serving someone else, and we've got to do something about it. And these right-wing populists, whether they are serving a neoliberal agenda or a kind of welfareist, racist agenda, um, they're they're making the same argument. Um, Now, on the left side of the, uh, the equation, what's interesting is that a lot of ideas that have been proposed in the past that were written off as radical, people, increasing numbers of people are are treating it like it's common sense, like Medicare for all, like the discussions about the Green New Deal, like the idea of a guaranteed income, 
I mean, it's like all of a sudden these ideas that were treated as Looney Tunes, more and more people are saying, no, this like makes sense. This is our opportunity. And and, and, And we've got to move and we've got to move fast because one of the things history demonstrates time and again is that there's very little tolerance for inaction. Uh, that if you don't grab the moment, it's gone. And it may be gone for decades. You know, the, the story I like to tell, and I'll shut up, is that um, as the Third Republic in France was being formed, there was a sort of neo-Bonapartist movement that was led by this general named Boulanger. And, uh, and, and this movement was starting to rise which ultimately was going to challenge the Third Republic. And they were preparing for a coup. And at the last moment, Boulanger lost his nerve and and didn't move forward. And the movement unraveled. And the French right was not able to fully recover until 1940. Um, It's like you, you get that moment and you grab it. Otherwise, history whacks you on the rear. Bill Fletcher. Now, Bill Fletcher, that is, thank you so much for that. And that is profound on so many levels. I want to, we are going to have to jump over because Kara Eastman is here. And Kara, but hang for a second, Bill, as I, as I segue from you over to Kara Eastman, because I want to say this about what Bill just introduced and also what Michael introduced. Um, as we, as we go to a candidate who's going to be running a progressive campaign in Omaha, Nebraska, in one of the most important races potentially ever in American electoral history. I'll explain that arithmetic in a moment. It is crazy, but Carrie Eastman is going to be at the center of history over the next few months. Um, I'm not sure that she got involved for exactly that, but I'll explain that arithmetic in a second. I think a lot of what Bill said in terms of the pragmatics, and I know Michael's going to have an opportunity to respond to this and Bill won't today, but we'll bring you back and have a longer dialogue uh, on one of our Zoom calls, uh, Bill Fletcher. I view it as, as, and this is simplistic, of course, walking and chewing gum, being able to have a radical critique of American society and also have a pragmatic approach to the situation at the moment. Now you're talking about a pragmatic moment that goes to a broader politics, but I do think mm-hmm. winning progressive seats, certainly Kari Bush's victory fits this mold of, of winning progressive seats. Uh, and Alex Morris has a great opportunity to defeat Richie Neal out in Western Massachusetts. He'll be on momentarily too. So I wanna bring you back, talk more about this. And I wanna thank you so much. And that really, I can see from the chat room that resonated profoundly with our audience today. So thank you so much. Um, My pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care, y'all. Okay, bye-bye now. And um, so I know I've teased with the uh, arithmetic of, uh, yes, and Jamal Bowman, Mike Hirsch, has certainly defeating Elliot Engel. Um, Kara Eastman is running to win a seat in Nebraska's second district. Nebraska is one of two states in the country in which the electoral votes are split, Maine and Nebraska. Um, If Donald Trump wins every state that he won last time and holds on to Dan O'Neill, I'm looking at you right now, Arizona and Wisconsin, but loses Joe Biden's home state of Pennsylvania and Michigan. And I'm sorry, Kara, to foreground you this way, because Kara is super essential in another way. I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, The electoral vote count comes to 268 to 268. The election comes down to Nebraska's second district and Maine's second district. The main district outside of the city of Portland, held currently by Democrat Jared Golden, and Kerry Eastman's district. So, just on that, 
people need to understand that getting out the vote, as PDA does, endorsing candidates as an independent expenditure pack like Carrie Eastman, we are going to be so honed in on supporting this candidate because she is a progressive candidate in that district in Nebraska that needs to be won by the Democrats. It's as important as the states almost in our crazy, ridiculous electoral college election system. Now, Carrie Eastman is also super important, and this goes somewhat to what Bill Fletcher was talking about, which is that she will be a champion progressive in Nebraska. And the reintroduction of real progressive politics into congressional districts uh, that have been held by the Republican Party and that the Republicans have been dominant in the region is going to be very important as we try to transform the politics of the United States of America. Because it is my belief that if Kara Eastman wins in November and she becomes the congressperson this time, she almost won in 2018 and wins this time, she will be introducing politics into the region of Nebraska, we all know where it is on the map, that are going to be so profoundly popular with her constituency. We got to get her through this threshold of winning in November. Carrie Eastman, welcome to Progressive Central. Uh, your thoughts on your campaign and uh, progressive politics in the United States of America on the final day of the DNC. Thank you so much, Alan. I'm so glad to be here. Hello, everyone. Um, as long as I'm gonna be this important of a figure in American history, uh, <laughs> my name is Kara. <laughs> oh, yeah. Please forgive me. That's okay. It's, you're not the first to do it, but I'm Kara Eastman. My parents chose that one for me. And uh, running for Congress in the 2nd District of Nebraska, and things are going well. We are ahead in the polls, and the district has been upgraded to toss-up from Lean Republican, which I think is a testament to the strength of our campaign, as well as just the changing demographics of the district. And, and frankly, we have a lot of disenchanted Republicans and independents here who are leaning Democrat. So we're we're working really hard. It's obviously a challenge to figure out the best practices of running during a pandemic, but I'm really proud of my team who immediately reconfigured. And we've just been making a lot of phone calls, writing a lot of postcards, doing a lot of texting and doing a lot of digital outreach that is targeted to our community. And uh, we're, we're finding great results. So we're, we're excited. Your thoughts on the way I just uh, framed, not the aspect of the Electoral College, but I'd be interested to hear how, if that is something that is being thought of in the district and if that's playing into the election, the potential of a 268-268 tie. Uh, but then also the resonance of, uh, you know, a, a really solid progressive candidate in a part of the country where, you know, the prevailing myth has been that you, you have to run these lukewarm Democrats. Yeah. Um, so, so to your question about the Electoral College, absolutely. And, and we're really focused on that. That's always our pitch to people outside the district who are considering donating. First of all, we're, I'm, I'm a cheap date. Uh, this is uh, one media market and it's a, just a great place to invest because we, we are essentially the Biden-Harris field team in this district. And so we're working together, but we have such a strong ground game that we can deliver that electoral college vote to to them. And and I think uh, in terms of progressive politics, I mean, we're we're always having to do this this balancing game, right? So so one, um, in in historically, we have not had the resources to be able to explain things like Medicare for all and the Green New Deal to people. And these are relatively new concepts in the in the scheme of American politics. But what, what we're finding is that there is a massive outreach effort to create misinformation about those things. 
and it's being well-funded by pharmaceutical companies, by insurance companies, by Republicans, and honestly, also by some Democrats who benefit from a system like that, where they like their private health insurance, perhaps because they've invested in health insurance. And so, so we have this, this interesting thing to do here where we're appealing to Democrats, and, and we've seen a huge increase in Democratic turnout since I've been running since the beginning of time or uh, since 2016, it feels like a very long time. Um, the turnout has has gone bonkers. I mean, we we doubled Democratic turnout in 2018. In uh, in May during the primary, turnout was has not had not been that high since 1972. So we know that our message is resonating with Democrats, and we're finally getting Democrats out the door to vote, or now at least to fill in their their vote by mail applications. So so that's fantastic. Then we have this kind of, you know, more conservative Democrat and, and, and they are a little bit afraid, right? Because, and I, and I don't know that they're as afraid of these policies as they are afraid of Donald Trump winning, winning reelection. And so that's something that we've had to balance of saying like, look, um, there's a lot of explaining to do about what Medicare for all means, which version I support. Um, and, and actually I've had some interesting conversations with people who were, you know, instrumental in getting the ACA passed, who have, you know, here in Nebraska, who have said, like, I don't know about this thing. And when I actually lay it out for them in two or three sentences, they say, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. So um, there's a lot of education, a lot of a lot of information that needs to get out there. But I need to win in order to be able to do that, because we don't have the, the resources to be able to do that in in, in this election. Um, but what we're finding is that we are building a coalition. We're bringing people onto our team. We, I've been endorsed by John Delaney and Elizabeth Warren. So we, you know, we kind of run the gamut there. And, uh, and I'm really proud of those endorsements because we do need to start building. Um, we, need, we need as much momentum as we can to get rid of the most dangerous president I think any of us has ever seen in the United States. Um, Cara, we have Alex Morris already with us, and I know his time is tight. And as you know, Alex has this election coming up in a, just a few days. Um, and um, we're going to have you back with PDA. Um, you should know, by the way, that we have thousands of people watching right now. We're on a whole set of social media streams. We've uh, hit the you know good th set of thousands the past few days. I'm imagining this is the largest audience so far. So we will have Cara, Cara Eastman back. And thank you so much for joining us today. PDA, of course, has endorsed Car Eastman to win in Nebraska second. She's a brilliant champion of the people out in Nebraska. I think a transformative politician for the Midwest. So let's get everybody behind Cara who's on the call. Uh, and of course, PDA will be flooding calls into the district as we do. So thank you so much for joining us today, Cara. Thank really. you, everyone. And Alex, good luck. Take care. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Cara. Uh, up next, and I know Tom Hartman is being so patient. And Tom, if you can just hang, if we have a time, if Alex has time for a second question, Tom Hartman, radio host, why don't you throw to him? I'll take it first, though. Of course, we've endorsed Alex Morris out in uh, Massachusetts' first district, which is held by Richie Neal. I'm going to be polite, and I'm not going to editorialize on Mr. Neal right now. He's the head of the House Ways and Means Commission. He's the place where all so many progressive um, initiatives go to die uh, in the current House. And there is a true, true, true progressive champion running against him. Uh, Alex Morse, we are so honored to have you here. Tell us about how the campaign looks and um, your your thoughts on what is drawing such a such a wave of energy behind your campaign right now. I, my understanding is you're surging in the polls and 
Elliot Engel was a big Democrat to lose. Joe Crowley was a big Democrat to lose. Richie Neal is as big as both of them combined. And we are so proud and excited to have you here, Alex. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alan, for that introduction. And I'm so proud and grateful to have the support of the Progressive Democrats of America joining other national organizations, Justice Democrats, the Sunrise Movement, the Working Families Party, Move On, that have all seen the national implications of this race against Congressman Richard Neal. I've been mayor of Holyoke for the last nine years. Uh, grew up here, uh, first in my family to go to college when I went to Brown and got elected when I was 22 years old. I was the youngest and the first openly gay mayor of a struggling post-industrial city here in Western Mass. And we've made incredible progress over the last nine years. Uh, but we've, do we've done that despite a lack of federal partnership and a broken federal government that really doesn't prioritize the people here and the communities in Western Massachusetts. The first district is 87 cities and towns, some very urban parts of the district, to hill towns, to farmers, to the Berkshires. And so it's a, it's a massive district. It's almost a third of the state of Massachusetts. And over the last nine years, in 2014, I made our city one of the first sanctuary cities to protect undocumented immigrants in the entire country. In 2016, I was the only mayor in Massachusetts to support the legalization of marijuana to dismantle and eradicate the impact of prohibition and the war on drugs. And we've largely transitioned the city off of fossil fuels. Today, we're 92% carbon neutral, uh, come out against further natural gas infrastructure in this district and in this country. And we closed the state's last coal-fired power plant and replaced it with the state's largest solar field. And I say all this because drug policy reform, immigrant and racial justice, and climate change are forces that don't stop at the borders of any one city or town. And we are represented by the most corporate, corrupt Democrat in Washington. Richie Neal is the chair of the Ways and Means Committee. He's using his power to block Medicare for All. In fact, didn't even allow members of the Ways and Means Committee to even say Medicare for All in a hearing last year. He's the only member of the Massachusetts congressional delegation that refuses to sign on to the Green New Deal at the very time he used his power and was the lead negotiator in the House to negotiate NAFTA 2.0 with this president that every major climate organization came out against. He continues to support the Hyde Amendment and right now takes more corporate PAC money than any member of Congress, Democrat or Republican. I know a thing or two about going up against the establishment. I ran against a 68-year-old Democratic mayor as a 21-year-old back in 2011. We brought our message directly to the people at their doorsteps and got elected. Nine years later, we're going up against, again, the number one corporate Democrat and one of the most powerful Democrats in Washington. And we're also going up against the D.C. establishment. And I will say we're 12 days out from this primary. There's no Republican in the general. And so whoever wins on September 1st will, will be the next member of Congress for the 1st District. We just released a poll on Monday that has us within five points, 46% for Richie Neal and 41% for us. We're 13% undecided. We have made over 700,000 phone calls to voters in this district, sending thousands of handwritten postcards. And over the last week and a half, we've had our best fundraising week of this entire campaign because there is more attention on this race now than ever before, given the dirty tricks and tactics of the Massachusetts Democratic Party in collaboration with supporters of Congressman Neal that wanted to smear our campaign and now has incredibly backfired and we have incredible momentum and are more fired up and invigorated than we have been since we launched this campaign last July. And so even if you don't live here in Western and Central Massachusetts, this race when you think about Jamal Bowman defeating Elliot Engel, it wasn't just about Jamal replacing Elliot. It was about ousting a conservative Democrat and altering the vision and future of foreign policy within our party, just as defeating Congressman Neal will be for tax policy, for financing. I mean, this guy is opposed to not just a Green New Deal, but opposed to a wealth tax. Along with Elliot Engel, was one of the only Democratic chairs this session to not have a single oversight hearing on the Trump administration. 
This is the guy that we worked hard to take back the House in 2018 that refused to even request this president's tax returns, refused to ask for the New York state returns, and again, isn't using his power for the working people of this country and has been complicit in the Trump administration's agenda. And so we have an opportunity to send a strong message to the Democratic Party about what kind of Democrats we want. What is the future of this party? Do we want to be a party that is bought and paid for by corporate interests and corporate PACs, or do we want to be a party that answers to everyday people? And I would argue it's not those members of Congress that have been there for 40 years, 30 years, that have the most influence and are wielding the most power on our country's agenda. It's those members of Congress, frankly, that have been there less than one term. And so I would encourage all of you to join us in the final 12 days, chip in a few bucks, help us have the resources to get our message out to voters. Join us on Zoom on phone banking over the next 12 days. Early person, early voting in person starts on Saturday. And so between now and September 1st, every day is election day. Every shift matters and every vote matters. And so thank you again for the support of PDA. It's a real honor to, to have your help and support in this fight. I know you got to go. Um, maybe just say hello to Tom Hartman. He's one of the leading radio hosts in the country. He's up next. Tom can say hi. Yeah. I know go you got to go. You yeah, have. Hi, Tom. And would love to would love to chat with you sometime. And uh, and uh, you're muted, Tom Hartman. Um, can we unmute my Tom? But also, I do want to let people know that Alex does have his final debate tonight. That is right, folks. His debate is somehow situated on the same night Joe Biden's accepting the nomination at the same time. But he has that tonight, and we are going to be doing everything. As you know, Alex Morrison, you know Tom Hartman, that PDA has its roots right at the uh, intersection of Jim McGovern's district of Massachusetts 2nd and uh, Alex's district in Massachusetts 1. So we are all in for Alex Morrison. Tom Hartman, say hi to Alex Morrison. Alex, I know how to go. Say hi. Hey, Alex. Uh, please reach out to us, and I'll, uh, uh, you know, there's my contact information. Alan can give you my contact information. And we'll get you on the show this week. I, I would love to support you. Awesome. Fantastic, Tom. It, it would be an honor. And uh, yeah, look forward to chatting and we will follow up to connect, okay? Thanks. Yeah. All right. And Thanks Alex, so much again. Go ahead. I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. I think you've been an absolute hero and champion this past 10 days, whatever it's been. And just all power to you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Alex Morris. Thank you so much, Alan. I really appreciate it. It means the world to me. And I'm uh, gonna see yeah, this is why I'm dressed up in a tie for the debate tonight. So <laughs> <laughs> take care. Thank you. All right. Yeah. With the with the with the beautiful Colin Kaepernick uh, August uh, picture behind him. Equal um, job EJI.org. Great organization great. Uh, in Montgomery. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much, Alex. Yep, take so care. on to Tom Hartman, who's been so patient. And Tom, I really, really appreciate uh, your, your allowing us to, to breathe out. We've got a little more time now. So your thoughts uh, on the final day of the 2020 Democratic Convention. Um, of course, you are really one of the founding figures of Progressive Democrats of America. We're so honored to have you here today. And your thoughts about the progressive movement and where we sit. Some of the themes that William Fletcher mentioned about how how closer we have become to seeing progressive political empowerment in the United States of America, what it will take to push us across the finish line, or even, even get closer. Go ahead, take it away. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, my thoughts exist on a bunch of different levels, and I'll try to mm -hmm. ping off a few of them. Um, by the way, I, I don't know your schedule and who's up next and all that kind of thing. How long? I, I think you I think you've got some breathing room here. Um, the next is, uh, is Mike Siegel down from Texas 10th. At the bottom of the hour, we've held the audience. Again, everybody should know, Alex's people should know. We have thousands of people watching on our uh, streaming uh, media. We're, we're even being streamed by People for Bernie, which is quite a social media behemoth. So um, you got time. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And Michael Leidy can, can comment afterwards. 
Sure. And, and uh, you know, I, yeah, I'd be interested to get Michael's take on, on my thoughts because I think that we're, uh, well, we'll see whether we agree or not. Um, my sense of it is, as I said, on a couple of different levels, the first is that our house is on fire. Uh, this is, I believe, and I agree with um, several of the speakers last night from the Democratic Convention, that uh, this is an existential crisis. The, Donald Trump does not understand democracy, does not, or if he does, he doesn't believe in democracy. The people around him don't believe in democracy. Uh, we have autocrats in office. It's, it's clear to me that if Donald Trump is not being coached by uh, you know, autocratic leaders, including Vladimir Putin and others, that uh, he at least is using their playbook. I mean, we're seeing uh, the playbook that, uh, you know, most recently, arguably, uh, Viktor Orban used in Hungary to basically destroy democracy. Uh, Hungary had become, uh, you know, a vibrant uh, de democracy. It was a member, they're a member of NATO, they were a member of, uh, or they're a member of the European Union. Um, and and then Orban came in and captured the courts, captured the media, uh, captured the corporate uh, side of things, uh, and has functionally shut down democracy altogether in Hungary. And Donald Trump is going step by step doing the same things, and 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 he's not going to give up, and he's not going to back down, and he's not going to be easily defeated. And and we and I think we all know that the day after the election on November 3rd or the night of November 3rd or November 4th or 5th, he's going to run George W. Bush's playbook from 2000, which is to say, uh, you know, when, when the vote in Florida was in doubt, but Al Gore looked like, it looked like solidly that Al Gore was ahead. And, and we know a, year, a full year later when the New York Times and the AP and uh, others uh, did a complete in the Washington Post did a complete count of all the ballots. They brought them up to New York in a giant trailer truck and took a whole year to count them. They found that by any measure, Al Gore won Florida, mm -hmm. and and Bush knew this. He knew that this was coming. He knew that Al Gore was 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 the president, and Al Gore, by the way, won the popular vote by half a million votes. And so Tom Delay and uh, and Roger Stone, uh, well, Tom Delay sent his people. He didn't go down, but. Roger Stone went down to Florida and ran this operation. They call it the Brooks Brothers Riot, where they were banging on the windows of the counting place in Miami-Dade right. County and, uh, you know, saying and, and had, you know, Fox News, you know, basically uh, Bush's uh, nephew on Fox News saying that Bush won and now Gore is trying to steal it from him. In fact, they called him a uh, robber man or stealer man or something like that. They had some right. slogan for Al Gore. And... Uh, and it worked for George W. Bush. I mean, it, 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 even though the Florida Constitution requires a recount on any election that's closer than one percent, and and this was just a few hundred votes, um, and the and the Florida Supreme Court ruled that it had to there had to be a recount. Um, George W. Bush was able to get the the U.S. Supreme Court to stop that recount and basically hand the presidency to him. And there's no doubt in my mind that Roger Stone is running that same playbook. I mean, he ran it in 2000. He's going to run it in 2020. He's doing it right now. And uh, particularly given, I mean, this, this mind-boggling statistic, this is from uh, MU Law, that among those who say they will vote by mail, 81% support Biden, 14% right. support Trump. Right. So you know, we know right. what's going on. And so our friggin' house is on fire. 
and the arsonist is in the house and he's and he's lighting matches and pouring kerosene literally every day and he's got a whole bunch of people joining him and when your house is on fire that's not when you have a a, a lengthy debate anyway about what kind of furniture uh, you know you want to you want to put in when you rebuild it um, i'm very concerned that uh that we need to work together to get George Bush out of office. Um, now, obviously, the, the the corollary to that is to get Joe Biden and Kamala Harris into office. Um, but I think uh, you know uh, the latest survey I saw showed that 34 percent of Biden voters were voting for Biden. 58 percent of them were voting against Trump. Right. And uh, you know we need to keep that going. <laughs> I mean, in my opinion, because our damn house is on fire. Democracy will not survive another four years of Donald Trump. He is going full Victor Orban, full Vlad Putin. I mean, you know, pick your pick your strongman, and and he's not unique in that. He's not alone in that. You, you know, whether it's you know long term tyrannies like Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia uh, supporting him. Uh, or the emir of uh, the UAE supporting him, or whether it's, uh, you know, relatively recent strongman apartheid uh, fans like Netanyahu, uh, or whether it's Modi in India, who has now uh, used, successfully used religion to destroy a large chunk of democracy in that country, or whether it's, um, you know, uh, in in the Philippines, uh, you know, I mean, just pick your country, right? We're watching mm, right. democracy fall around right. the world. Right. And, We've got to put the damn fire out. We've got to get Donald Trump out of office and and purge the Senate in particular of the Republicans who are there. And um, so uh, priority number one. Uh, number two, I don't think that we can underestimate the power of the times. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of the great man theory of history. Mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. Were it not for Thomas Jefferson having been alive, America never would have happened. I think that you know the, the 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 accumulation of from Thomas Hobbes in 1634 to to Rousseau in 1668 to to Locke in 1674 to to you know the whole procession that led to Jefferson and led to America and led to these ideals that that um, created this country, even though they were obviously imperfectly acted out. Um, I, I am of the opinion that that would have happened with or without any of those individuals, that there, there happened to be some very eloquent people who stepped into the into the vacuum at a time of need. And I think it's really important that we remember that Franklin Roosevelt, who had been the governor of arguably the most corrupt state in the union and was uh, being investigated for corruption with regard to a state Supreme Court justice at the time of the election, mm -hmm. campaigned on balancing the budget. That was his big idea in 1930. That he was going yeah. to balance the damn federal budget, right. um, but the house was on fire then too, and you know Herbert Hoover and Republican policies had burned down this country. They were destroying working people, and everybody knew it. And um, and, and and then I would add, it seems that roughly every eighty years we see this, and it reminds me of Arnold Toynbee's uh, famous saying that uh, when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies. Right, this great war becomes inevitable. There you um, go. Had had uh, the uh, Republicans and the Democrats who joined them in 1999 on the floor of the Senate to say, "Oh, we need to blow up Glass Steagall. It's worked so well. We don't need it anymore." You know, had they tried doing that in 1969 when there were still people in the Senate who remembered 
glass, you know, when what it was like when Glass-Steagall was passed. They would have laughed off the floor of the Senate. But those people were all dead. And, uh, you know, now the people who remember the Bund and who remember the fascist movement and the rise of, of uh, uh, Lindbergh and, you know, everything that was happening in the 30s, um, you know, that uh, those people are largely dead, too. Or if they're if, if they're still around, they're not being listened to. And, and so there's, you know, a couple of generations that are rediscovering history and re and having to basically reinvent the times right now. And we need to recognize that and honor that. Um, so, you know, in essence, what I'm saying, I think, is that I'm actually very optimistic about the future. I think that mm -hmm. if we look at the arc of history 80 years ago, we had, you know, the Great, Great Depression followed by World War II and then the New Deal or the New Deal and then World War II, but it got played out after the war. Um, in 80 years before that, we had the, the rise of the oligarchy in the South and the declaration of war against the North, or against America. And, uh, you know, the Civil War and, and that uh, out of that came a lot of progressive changes, uh, the principle among them, the ending, uh, ending uh, at least the formal ending of slavery. 80 years before that was the Great Crash of 1770, which led to the Boston Tea Party in 1773, a revolt against England supporting the monopoly and and then the American Revolution. So I, I really think that we're at one of those major turning points in history. But uh, in my opinion, the, the most important thing we need to do right now is put out the fire and build, as, as uh, Michael was talking about, build a movement, build a, 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 an extensive inside-outside movement, uh, a movement on the outside that can push a, a movement and alliances on the inside that can pull, that can move things forward, um, getting people like our, your, your last guest who, you know, uh, is taking on a dinosaur Democrat to uh, to be in position for when that happens, mm -hmm. and you know, post election. But mostly, we need to be ready for all hell to break loose in November. I'm confident that that's going to happen, and yes. it's not. Uh, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be very, very ugly. There are going to be Nazis in the streets with guns. There will probably be, uh, according to what they're saying right now, there will be bloodshed. I think that Portland, the town that I'm I'm talking to you from, we saw the dress rehearsal for this. I think that Trump moved those troops, and they, and he's pulling them out of ICE. ICE is now uh, uh, they they have now. First of all, the Republicans have recruited fifty thousand people to confront people in the polls. This is the first time since the '60s that they've been legally able to do this. The restraining order against them expired last year, and uh, that that went back to the to the I'm sorry to the 1980s, and so expect to see bikers and police in uniform who are off duty at the polls, intimidating people all over the country. They got 50 friggin' thousand people that they've signed up to do this, so-called poll watchers. Um, at the same time, ICE, which has become Trump's private police force, and that's who he was sending here to Portland, um, ICE and other people within the immigration department, they, they are the one police agency in the federal government that is completely loyal to Donald Trump and that he never trashes. Um, they have opened a, an academy for Proud Boys and Three Percenters and other uh, assorted right-wingers to go through where they're teaching them how to use weapons and how to perform citizens' arrests. They just graduated their first class, thousands of these people. It's all being done basically under the radar. Those people are going to be doing crowd control and riot control in November and December. They are getting ready, and we need to be getting ready for 
uh, you know, something that resemble something that we haven't seen in this country since the Civil War, which is, you know, absolute chaos coming from within our government as well as outside of our government. And uh, so, you know, whether whether a particular candidate is saying, yeah, I'm for the public option or whether they're saying I'm for Medicare for all right now, I'm perfectly willing to hold in abeyance that debate until January. Um, although, you know, it's always good to talk about it, and I do regularly on the radio. Right. But I don't think that a lot of people realize how serious this is going to get and frankly, how deadly it's going to get. These guys are reading the Turner Diaries. You know, this is a novel that came out back in the early 70s in which uh, a, uh, an activist, a white supremacy activist, blows up the federal building in Oklahoma City. And as a result of that, the president clamps down and says, we're going we're gonna to take everybody's guns away. And the white Christian gun owners rise up and start slaughtering people of color, Jews, Hispanics, um, black people. Uh, I mean, just a slaughter across the country. And at the end of the novel, you know, the last guys standing are the good white Christian gun owners. And that has had such a revival in the last six years, and particularly in the last three years, that novel and the movements that have grown out of it. And it's now incorporated itself into QAnon, which now has millions of members. It's a it's a murder the opposition strategy. And, and these guys are openly talking about this and we need to take them seriously and, and, and get ready for this fire and, 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 and be planning on how to put the damn fire out. How are we going to stand up when, when what they did here in Portland comes to your town? Cause they're going to come to your town. They're going to, and, and, you know, I mean, destroying the, the mail devices and in, in, if you look at the places where the machines were scheduled to be removed mm-hmm. or have been removed, uh, you overlay that map on the map of where Hillary Clinton, you know, performed right. in the last election, and there's almost 100% concordance. Um, we need to be ready for this. So, end of rant, I guess. Um, thank you. And um, we've been joined, by the way, Norman Solomon, who's going to join in the conversation this hour. Um, we're going to go back to Michael for a thought, then over to Norman, then maybe back to Tom. We do have three other components for this hour, just for the house cleaning to make clear, because they're all exciting. We have Mike Siegel joining us from Texas 10th for a few minutes at the bottom of the hour. We have Nina Turner joining us for the final 15 minutes. And we have um, uh, we have a video. And I hope the people from the staff can let me know how long it is that we're going to play. We're going to put the whole thing up online afterwards. It's a real treat. We're joined, in fact, by, by, uh, by Nina Turner right now. So maybe Nina can jump in if she wants to very soon. But we have a video, by the way, that we're going to play. And if the staff can let me know the length of what we're going to play, because it is about 40 minutes, we're certainly not going to play that now, which is uh, Jesse Jackson being interviewed by Tom Hartman. Sorry, Tom, not by you, by John Nichols. <laughs> and uh, and um, Steve Cobble will be introducing that. And of course, Steve Cobble, uh, PDA's political director, veteran of both Jackson campaigns. And um, Tom, I just want to let you know, too, that, uh, you know, PDA, we, we have this sort of quirk where we um, endorse candidates, and we only endorse candidates that support things like Medicare for All, the Green New Deal. Uh, but we do uh, understand that our base works and supports candidates, and along with our partner, Roots Action, and uh, who Norman Solomon has joined us, we are fully committed to seeing the defeat of Donald Trump, and we will do everything we can. In fact, along with Norman, um, and I'm sure this is uh, true for everybody who's, who's feeling this way, we are really essential to the project of defeating Donald Trump 
We feel that we are. We feel we're right on the front lines because uh, the progressive movement, the movement that supported Bernie Sanders, the movement that supports the whole progressive policy slate, skews very young. Young people are very difficult to get to vote in this country, even more difficult to get to vote in terms of, and we had, uh, we had Mimi Kenny on your show the other day from PDA about 2020voterscalendar.org. And we understand how essential it is for, um, to make as clear as possible how to vote given the uniqueness of the 2020 election and the fall election. And we feel that if, again, young people, given where they are in the ideological spectrum, come out and vote at any rate, it's going to be a significant boost to Joe Biden's campaign in defeating Donald Trump. And so as progressives, we're going to be making the case along, partly along the lines of what you made, partly in other ways, too, um, uh, I'm sure in ways that you fully agree with. But we are fully committed, 100 percent as an organization, to doing everything we can to see that Donald Trump is defeated in the fall. Um, so. Um, Norman Solomon's here and Nina Turner's here. I'm actually, Mike Lighty, if, sorry about this again. I'm not going to ask your indulgence. If we could invite Nina on, because I know Nina's schedule is super tight. And um, Nina Turner, welcome. Um, can you hear me, Nina? I can, Alan. Can you hear me? Oh, wow. And uh, it's great. To, yes, I can hear you. It's great to see you, too. It's great to have you live. Yeah. And I know your time is tight. And um, I was so, and I understand you probably won't hang out for the last 45 minutes. Maybe we'll close the hour out with the video of uh, Reverend Jackson and John Nichols. Um, the roots of PDA go back in many respects. The, the legacy goes back, of course, to the Jackson campaign. But your thoughts right now, Nina Turner, uh, on um, defeating Donald Trump, the DNC as you've seen it, and the way path forward for progressives and progressive politics in the United States of America. Well, thank you for this. Alan, and it's good to be with Progressive Central, all the progressives that are here. Dag, I hate to bump Michael Lighty again, my dear friend. Michael oh, no, he's, he's, he's been out already. He'll be right on right after you. Oh, okay, good, good. So I see a whole bunch of my friends on here, supporters, Sandra, people saying, hello, somebody. Hello, somebody. Hey, Nancy, calling out people, Christine. <laughs> Oh my God, Catherine, all of you. I can't call out everybody. Hello, somebody. Just sending love right back to you all. Alan, I got a chance to listen to what you were saying. I think you might've been answering a question. I mean, we know very clearly that a neo-fascist is, you know, President Trump is a clear and present danger. And that doesn't mean we got to sell out on what we uh, believe and know that we need to fight our righteous indignation. You know, I just had the pleasure and privilege of, interviewing Secretary Robert Reich for my podcast, Hello Somebody, and he illuminated, and I hope that all of you will tune into that, which will be posted in about two weeks, but just illuminating the, the clear and present danger that Donald J. Trump is, that President Trump is. And so I know for progressives in this moment, it's hard because our candidate did not win. And I feel that frustration. I want to absorb that frustration because one of the mistakes that I think is being made within the DNC apparatus is to just dismiss that emotion and say to progressives, because Donald J. Trump is dangerous, get over it and let's get on, on board. No, that's not enough. We already know that. President Trump is definitely dangerous. No doubt about it. He is a neo-fascist, no doubt about it. And as Dr. West has articulated, I think as clear as anybody can, a neo-fascist is the most dangerous in this moment. That doesn't mean you got to like any of the things that are going on right now. We must continue to fight. 
it is the fight that we are putting up that is making the change. And we are only going to grow stronger if people take that anger and that frustration and turn it into organized action. Baby, ain't nothing they're going to be able to do with it. They're not going to be able to touch it. So I do want you to know that even for those of you who think it's untenable, that you have untenable choices, you know, one is more untenable than the other. We got to come on and weigh this out and let's have a family conversation about it. Your vote can be just against President Trump. It is a binary decision. We only got two choices. Well, there's a third choice, Alan, but I don't want people to take the third choice. But I'm not going to vote shame. I'll let the professional vote shamers do that. <laughs> there, there is a third choice, which is to sit this out. And I don't want anybody to sit this out. You know, I definitely come from a tradition, a tradition that is rooted certainly in how the African-American community came to fight blood, sweat, and tears to get the vote in the first place. So that tradition was planted in me by my grandmother. You got to vote. And so I want to say that to people that even though that is a third option, I don't want you to take that option. Please do not take that option. Because the, the, the greatest equalizer that we do have is the notion of being able to go and vote. And even though President Trump is doing everything in his power through, I want to say that, messing with, I want to use another word, inserted, with the post office, you know, and that has to be dealt with. All of that, you still got to get out there and vote. A lot of this will be vote by mail. And so we got to make sure that younger voters who may not necessarily, they might not even deal with that vote by mail. This is going to be a challenge. This is going to be uphill battle. You know, don't let the polls fool you. A lot of people who do support Mr. Trump, President Trump, are probably not going to say so. So we can't get giddy about this. This is going to take all hands on deck to defeat this man. But if that's what it takes for you to get out there and vote, you got to have that in your mind's eye. We still need vision and provision. None of that stuff changes. None, none of what we fought for changes. We just have to put it into concentrated action. And there are multiple ways to do that, starting with changing this Congress. Hello, somebody. See, the beautiful thing about the House of Representatives, because, you know, both houses are in the Congress, but the House of Representatives is that those races are every two years, baby, every two years. And we have progressive organizations that are ready and we need to bring in more and form a pack with one another, P-A-C-T with one another on key issues and key and candidates. And I would love to see the progressive movement. And Dr. Reich and I, I won't give away all my, my interview because I want you to go listen to it. <laughs> was talking about what we can actually do in 2022. In other words, all our hopes and dreams that do not have to rest in the White House, but we do have to wrestle the White House away mm. from that madman. That, that has to happen. Definitely has to happen. So all of the critique, we can continue to critique neoliberals. We can continue to stand up for what just and right and good. Because, baby, in Nevada, let me shout out our Nevada leaders. Yes, yes. A very good right now example, not even a yesterday example, a right now example of how they organized, how they did what our dear brother Michael Rinder, a.k.a. Killer Mike, said, which is the plot, plan organize, strategize, mobilize, and capitalize. They did that with the platform. They made a demand. It wasn't answered, and there was a consequence. Now, what was the consequence? Folks just didn't vote for the platform. Now, they could have sat back and said, we don't have the numbers. We can't pull off something like this. So why even try? No, they didn't do that. 
They just said, we're we going to plot and plan and we're going to get as many delegates as we can to vote against that platform and solidarity, drawing the line on what is just right and good when it comes to Medicare for all. And they did that. The same thing happened in California by way of example, shouting out the California delegation that made a demand. They said, it is Congressman Rokana or we vote no on anybody else that y'all want to put up there to be the chair of the California delegation. Now they could have sat it out and said, you know, ultimately we're not going to win or we don't have, oh no. They did that. They made a demand and they they actually won. So those are just examples of what can happen when we concentrate our power and our effort. When we put a little extra on our ordinary baby, extraordinary things happen. And so I do want you to imagine what we can do beyond this moment and not let your disappointment and your anger and your frustration stop you from standing up and uniting and defeating this president. However you want, this, he, the man has to go. Absolutely has to go. There's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. And we don't necessarily have to put up and, and, and fall in love with the choice that we have, but we are going to fight. Progressives, baby, as the secretary said, we are the life of the party. Hello, <laughs> somebody. Jesus. I said, go on, Secretary Rice. You better talk, speak that truth. You know, he gave sister a little more. You know, I'm, 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 I'm feeling that. I was feeling that. So I, too, feel as many of the leaders like Alan and others don't think we don't get frustrated and upset and thinking what in the hell WTF moments going on all the time. Mm-hmm. But any great movement, all great movements and changes that have happened in this country where material differences were made, it is because of the grassroots, people just like you who had and shared similar frustration and anger and anxiety about choices throughout the course of history, but they did not relent. And we are, sisters and brothers, the 21st century version of those freedom fighters, of those liberators. We are, in the words of Sister Ella Baker, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. So progressives, go on and get ready. Just know that you will never, ever have a moment of rest because where there is injustice, baby, there will be a progressive. We need the primary neoliberals. Hello, somebody. Either they're going to see it our way or they're going to get primary. And what is our way? Because you might say, Sister Senator, not you. Oh, no, what is our way is the way that the overwhelming majority of American people feel and need. They might not necessarily call it progressive, and that's okay. But over 69% Medicare for all, check that box. Majority believe that we need a Green New Deal, that we got to deli- deal with climate change. Go check that box. Majority of Americans believe that we have to reform a criminal justice system that is racist and bigoted. Go on, baby, check that box. See, what we are fighting for is not fringe. It's right on time. Many of you heard me say that on the campaign trail, but it ain't radical. It is right on time. And I assure you that the American people are on our side. They just might not, they might not frame it in that way. So know this, that we are fighting for what is just and right and good, and that doesn't change. Know this, that there is going to be a day of reckoning with the 
progressives, know this, mm -hmm. that we are not going anywhere. Know this, that there have been generations before us that have had the same fights and have been victorious. Know this that we stand in the ready position for past generations, for the present and for future generations. And if I may close with my sister Rosario Dawson, when we were on the road together in 2016, and she said these words to a group of activists, and I can't say it any better than she said. She said this, I am here to encourage your courage. Hello, somebody. I am here to encourage your courage. So I want to leave you with that. And if you use that quote, make sure you say, I was quoting Rosario Dawson because he needs to get her credit for that. That is so powerful. <laughs> and I want you to ask yourself this question. How many people's courage can you encourage? That is what we are in the business of doing as progressives, encouraging each other's courage because our mission is so high we can't get over it. Our mission is so low, we can't get under it. And our mission is so wide, we can't get around it. And baby, with these hands, it might not have come through the, through the through a presidential election, but make no mistake about it. With these hands, we will have Medicare for all. With these hands, we will have college for all. With these hands, we will cancel student debt. With these hands, we will have a humane immigration system. Hello, somebody. With these hands, we stand in solidarity with our Palestinian sisters and brothers. With these hands, we will change a criminal justice system that is rotten to the core. With these hands, we will eradicate systemic racism. And with these hands, together, we will triumph and pass that baton to a next generation of freedom fighters that will do it again and again and again. Progressives, Dr. Robert Reich is right. We are the life of the party. All right, Alan, baby. Yes. Come on. Turner. Yes. I love y'all. The podcast is Hello Somebody. Hello, somebody. I will be watching it everywhere. Thank you so much. Thank and um, oh, thank you, thank you. And I'm um, just so honored to have you here. And Michael Lighty, you're going to be up in a second. But right now, we got Mike Siegel is going to be joining us. He is the candidate progressive champion down in Texas. 10th is going to flip a Republican district uh, in, you know, just a fantastic uh, progressive candidate. And uh, I believe that. Mike is with us, and we're going to be getting over to Michael Lighty right after Mike Siegel, and we're going to be getting back to Tom Hartman and Norman Solomon as well, and then closing out with Jesse Jackson and John Nichols with Steve Cobble introducing. So um, I want to say this about Mike Siegel so that people can understand, um, again, a super, super, super important election. Texas 10th, this is an election that will be coming up in the fall, unlike Alex Morris, who we just heard from, who's running in September 1st, and unlike Ed Markey, who's running on September 1st in Massachusetts. So Austin, Texas. Within Texas, it is, of course, uh, a very, very progressive city and metropolitan area. Um, and uh, Lloyd Doggett represents um, most of Austin. But running from the Austin suburbs down to Houston is Texas 10th. And right now, a true progressive champion is running neck and neck with a sitting Republican, a congressperson, Mike Siegel almost won in 2018, and this time, we really feel he's got an incredible shot. Now, let's think about this again, just like we were talking about when Kara Eastman, Kara Eastman was on, that uh, this is about introducing progressive politics, progressive policies, the parts of the country where they have not been winning elections in recent time, and simultaneously, 
This is the young gentleman who, when he wins, is going to be the progressive champion, of one of the cultural capitals of the country, which is Austin, Texas. I mean, it's, it's a real, you know, place that does produce a lot of media coming out of Texas, a lot of entertainment and stuff. And so ideas get disseminated out from places like Austin, Texas. This is a very, very important person with a great chance of winning. He is right in line with PDA uh, and our other progressive organizational allies. Mike Siegel, welcome to Progressive Central in the last half an hour of Progressive Central 2020. Well, thank you so much, Alan. And uh, thank you, Senator Nina Turner, for getting us all fired up. Uh, an extremely tough act to follow. If, if you had told me I was yeah. after Senator Turner, I might have been like, well, maybe next time. Alan. But uh, <laughs> really... Uh, Really honored to have the support of the Progressive Democrats of America. Thank you all for what you do, uh, for laying the foundation uh, for, for really this you know, new generation of progressive folks coming up, uh, including my, my campaign here in Texas. Uh, to, so to set the stage, I'm running in the Texas 10th, uh, which was gerrymandered like the rest of Texas back in 2003. And Michael McCall, uh, with his father-in-law's money, his father-in-law is the CEO of Clear Channel, one of the biggest uh, media corporations in the nation. They basically bought this seat, and McCall has had it for the last 16 years. Uh, he's worth $300 million, and he hasn't done anything to help the people. And so I ran last cycle in 2018 when uh, nobody thought we had a chance in heck of winning. We narrowed the margin with a strong grassroots campaign, over 1,000 volunteers that made 300,000 voter contacts. We surprised a lot of outside observers. We outperformed uh, so-called red-to-blue candidates, and we narrowed the margin from 19% to 4%. And so, you know, had to do it one more time. I quit my job in January 2019 so I could do this full time and we're running to finish the job. And I just emerged from a tough fought primary, I actually had two people challenge me for the Democratic nomination. Uh, a total of four and a half million dollars was spent and three and a half million against me. But the reason I won the nomination is with people power. Uh, before COVID-19 started, uh, we knocked tens of thousands of doors. After the, the shutdown here in Texas, we made hundreds of thousands of phone calls. And the reason we were able to reach the voters in that way is because I'm running on an unapologetic progressive platform. I'm running on Medicare for all here in the heart of Texas. Uh, and the way I talk about it is let's keep those rural hospitals open, those, those three hospitals in this district that have closed in the last 10 years. Uh, let's keep people out of medical debt bankruptcy. Let's make sure that uh, at a time of a pandemic, that you have no hindrance to going to get a COVID test. I mean, the New York Times wrote about how if, if you go to get a test in Texas, you might be billed $200 cash or $5,000 with your insurance. And so, uh, you know, we, we talk about Medicare for all. Uh, we talk about ending the war on drugs. Obviously, voting rights is a huge issue. And then perhaps the most controversial issue I've been running on is a Green New Deal. I'm running on a Green New Deal in a district that includes the Houston oil patch, uh, all these people working in the fossil fuel industry but that also in a district that includes a huge coal plant in, in the rural areas that's been poisoning the air and water for four decades and across seven rural counties that have basically unregulated fracking, including next to freshwater supplies for, for you know, a lot of Republican voters still like to have clean air and clean water. And uh, a key moment in this campaign is when I went to the Texas AFL-CIO convention and there was actually a holdup on getting my, my endorsement. And I'll tell you, I was surprised. I actually come from a union family myself. Uh, I'm a two-time union member as a public school teacher, later as a city worker. And my campaign is unionized. I mean, I thought this was a slam dunk. But those fossil fuel workers in Houston were wondering, you know, what does a Green New Deal mean for me? Are, are you basically advocating to cut my job and my livelihood? 
And I let folks know that we're gonna fight for a just transition. We're gonna have workers at the table to make sure that the Green New Deal, first and foremost, is a national jobs program that creates millions of good new jobs, including union jobs, to put everyone to work rebuilding a renewable economy, rebuilding our infrastructure, and making sure we can transition from the fossil fuel era to a renewable energy era. And when I, once I caucused with actually every union in the state over a three-day convention, I won the unanimous endorsement of the Texas FLCIO executive board. And that's how we're going to win this race. That's why the Sunrise Movement made 100-something thousand calls for me in the runoff. That's why labor in both Austin and Houston is going to turn out big for me in November. Uh, that's why I've earned the endorsement of national groups like PDA, like Democracy for America. Um, Move On endorsed me last week. You know, we're building a, a real powerful progressive movement here in Texas. Obviously, it's not just my campaign. There are folks running for local office, state office, national office. And we're letting everyone know that you can win even races like this. You know, there's the, the traditional point of view that the only way to flip a, you know, a red seat in Texas is to run to the middle to be basically a former Republican or a military veteran. Uh, don't talk about any real social justice issues. Just say access to care. Don't say guaranteed health care. But we're going to flip the script. And, and I think this race is one of the, the opportunities we have nationally. I think Kara Eastman's another one where we can prove that progressive politics can win in red districts. And I've actually um, you know, turned a corner with the National Democrats. I even got a check from Speaker Pelosi the other day. Uh, these folks are starting to believe that we can win a race like this. And I'll tell you, um, maybe it's a, for, a form of affirmative action, you know, that the National Democrats need to have a few progressives as part of the slate. So um, <laughs> anyway, big picture, uh, I would be honored if y'all would, would join me in this work. You know, uh, if you can spell my last name right, you can find me on the on the web, um, you know, donate a few dollars, make a few phone calls. Uh, we're we're going to do everything we can do. I'm going to raise the money so we can have the ads and mail. We're going to make hundreds of thousands of voter contacts. We're going to do the relational organizing because, you know, I need to work with the Muslim community, the black community, the Latino community. Uh, we're going to organize in every sector of this district and uh, show folks that progressives are going to fight for you, that we have the answers to the crises we're facing this moment. We're in a health pandemic. We're fighting for universal health care. We're in a climate crisis. We're fighting for a major national jobs program through the Green New Deal. We're in a crisis of democracy and we're fighting to restore voting rights and get that John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed. And so we have a great chance to win. Um, thank you so much, Alan, for having me here. And, and with that, I'll, I'll pass the mic back to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Mike Siegel. And we do have in our core PDA family, a Joel Siegel and a Dan Siegel, and now we have a Mike Siegel. So it's great. Different spelling on this one. So make note of that, everybody, Mike Siegel. And so honored. Thank you so. And we are, of course, 100% with you. And we will be flooding calls in the Texas 10th for Mike Siegel. PDA folks, support this candidacy. Support our efforts to support the candidacy. And Mike, so glad you could join us today. Thank you so much, Alan. Go get Thank on. you. So I'll ask back to Michael Lighty and Norman Solomon, Tom Hartman, who've been very patient. Um, and Michael Lighty, um, we, we owe the general question of your thoughts on all that's been going on in the conversation <laughs> that you've been hearing. Uh, you produced a powerful volley of thoughts early on. And, and uh, how, how does what you've been hearing over the last 40 minutes uh, harmonize with, with what you presented earlier? And, and yeah, just take it away. You know, I think it harmonizes really well, Alan. Thank you. And I, I've been proud to support Mike Siegel. I support his last run and, and supported this run, too, because I do think we've got to elect progressives to Congress. There's a question. Cory Bush's election significant. Um, the fact that no national union endorsed her 
and she still won is significant. I think, um, and it's a sign that this is a diverse movement and also a sign we've got to pull some of those institutional players in our direction. Cara Eastman's victory would be very significant, as would Mike's. I really appreciated Tom's comments because it's clarity. We're not, do not expect us to change Biden-Harris. Do not try to convince people that they are something they're not. Let's get rid of the fascist in the White House, because it's not like President Obama said the other night that he represents a threat to democracy. He is already anti-democratic. He is already fascist. And we can talk about how we got here, but let's be clear that it's already in place and we have to dislodge it. And so what Bill Fletcher said is 100% correct. What Tom said is 100% correct. And the only solution to counteract that level of violence, right, that is being organized is mass, mass civil disobedience. We have to have literally millions of people prepared to go into the streets and enforce the defeat of Donald Trump. That's what it's going to take. And it's not I mean, there might be elements of the state that are with us, maybe the FBI, who knows, but there's clearly elements of the organized military police who will be against us. And I think, Tom, my daughter lives in Portland, so I know what he's, what he's talking about when he talks about Portland. I hope it's not that bad, because Portland, people don't understand, has an active white supremacist presence mm-hmm. that's on mm-hmm. the streets, right? So this is not abstract to the people of Portland. But I think the same thing that has to animate our our organizing once we can have a Biden-Harris administration has to animate our response to the election and has to motivate our work for the election. And that's the defeat of Donald Trump. And why the partly why the Dem Convention is a disappointment is because it's not motivating the base sufficiently. And that's our job. We've got to motivate the base. And if it takes understanding the stakes, let's be honest about the stakes. We have to dislodge the fascists from the White House and not pretend that we're doing something else, not pretend these people are something they're not. And I think that kind of clarity leads to a strategic mobilization and not just symbolic militancy. Thank you so much. And we'll get to Tom Hartman's response in a second. But first, I want to introduce Norman Solomon. Um, Norman, who is, uh, by the way, Roots Action, our co-sponsors of this event, along with our revolution People for Bernie and the Bernie Delegates Network. We have a slew of other sponsors, Demand Progress, uh, Code Pink. I saw Medea Benjamin's on the call. By the way, I believe Donna Smith was on earlier. Big shout out. Big shout out to Judith Whitmer from Nevada, who who sparked the Medicare for All no vote petition in the DNC. Norman Solomon, welcome to the last uh, volleys of uh, contributions to Progressive Central 2020. Is Norman with us? I know we had him, we might have lost him. Looks like we've lost him. So over to you, Tom Hartman, um, you're up. Thank you, Alan, and thank you. Uh, I, you know, I, and thank you, Michael. Um, Want to tip a hat to, to Nina. It's great, I don't know if you're still listening, Nina, but it is so great to see you. Uh, Louise and I often talk about you know, the, the time we had dinner with you and your husband and in and, and DC and the, the, all the many times that you've been on our program and the great work that we've all done together. Um, the point of my rant before, uh, to boil it down, and I just, I, I think it's, because I, I think I missed a therefore in there, uh, 
was that, you know, when I said I, I'm not a big fan of the great man theory of history, that, that history is defined by the people who happen to be around, I think that history is defined by the moments. And it's to what Nina said, which is that uh, it is it has never been some great leader who rises up and says, I, Claudius, uh, who, who changes the world. It's always been, as you know, Margaret Mead said, it's always been activists. It's always been people uh, from the grassroots. It's always been all real change, all lasting change, all change that goes deep into the soil and grabs hold has come out of the soil. It's come out of the grassroots. It's come out of, out of we the people. And if we are going to successfully dislodge this fascist in the White House, that's going to require the action of the people. If we are going to successfully push back on what they are already planning and preparing for and already have at least 100,000 troops ready for now uh, between their, their so-called poll watchers, the 50,000 of those, the, uh, they've added another 40,000 people to ICE in the last few months. If we are to confront that in the fall, we need the people. But I think most importantly, if we are if, you know, assuming, which is a dangerous assumption right now, because Hillary Clinton was about as far ahead right now of Donald Trump a year, four years ago as, as Joe Biden is right now. But if, if, if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris become our president and vice president, that's when our real work begins. And again, it's going to be from the grassroots up. And this is the, the extraordinary, powerful, important work the PDA has been doing from the beginning. Um, I was so uh, you know, honored to, to, to work with Tim and, and, and all so many of you uh, for so many years on PDA. And uh, this, this is the key. I mean, it's grassroots mobilization, waking up people, getting people out there and getting them active, even if out there means, you know, just, you know, talking on social media. I mean, you know, whatever people could do from whatever, wherever they can do it. But uh, we need to be ready for, for some, some rough times this fall. As, as I said, I'm, I'm here in Portland. We're seeing it firsthand and it's, it's damn shocking stuff. And, and it's far worse than what the media is portraying. Thank you so much, Tom Hartman. It's really great to have you here. I do want to point out that behind Tom to his on his right shoulder is his brand new book. He has um, run written this incredible series of, uh, of books called the Hidden History Series. And this is his latest edition on monopolies. And if anybody doesn't know the details of the CARES Act and what they did to strengthen the hand of monopolies, uh, this is part of our immediate future, too. So that's a very important work I recommend people picking up by Tom called The Hidden History of Monopolies. And also, I really recommend people listening to the Tom Hartman radio show. Catch it whenever you can. Uh, one thing that is so true about that show is, you know, we do we do live inside the American constitutional political system. That's not going to change anytime soon, folks. And Tom really provides uh, a way to navigate that reality that I think is often not really understood by progressives and the left in general, how this whole system works, all of its nuances. And that's really becomes apparent uh, day in, day out listening to Tom Hartman. So really, Great to have you, Tom, and thank you so much for being here. And um, and I'm going to bring on Norman Solomon, who is with us, or he was. Is he here again? Norman, Norman, do we keep losing you? Uh, yes, he is here. Great. Norman Solomon, welcome back to uh, Progressive Central. Um, and uh, he is the, the co-founder of uh, and national coordinator for uh, Roots Action, our co-sponsor of Progressive Central 2020. Norman, are you with us? I'm here and I wanna say, it's just been so great for rootsaction.org to work really closely with PDA 
in what has seemed like an interminable lead up and the convention or so-called yes. convention. So uh, it's been uh, an effort to uh, bring and help bring more reality to a burlesque of uh, sort of pseudo-democracy of this convention. Uh, you know, like Nina Turner said, we've got to wrestle the White House away from the madman. And uh, Roots Action has a Vote Trump Out program in swing right. states. It's called VoteTrumpOut.org. We premiered a video with Noam Chomsky talking about uh, the essential need to uh, defeat Trump. Something I want to emphasize when we go through the steps, and it's quite proper to talk about what happens after November 3rd in terms of even the election results, is that we need to ring up as big a margin as possible uh, against Trump. Uh, we don't want it to be uh, a very thin margin. Uh, Roots Action is totally ignoring all the safe states. I think it's a waste of time to try to convince people in New York or California to vote for Biden. It's a waste of resources and argument and all the rest of it. There are clearly no more than 15 swing states, probably a dozen. That's where our time and energy and focus really needs to be and get that margin as big as possible. There's a sort of a juxtaposition that's sometimes made by the corporate media that, oh, at this point, we shouldn't express any dissent or difference with the Biden campaign. I think that's completely wrong, both programmatically and tactically. Uh, the, the Fox people are saying that Biden is some sort of leftist and socialist. We know that's crazy. And we know that it doesn't help at all to conflate the progressive movement with the neoliberals of the Biden campaign. And so actually this week as before, and I think moving forward, progressives really need to clearly articulate how the Biden-Harris ticket fundamentally differs from what we have in terms of a vision for a future that is humane and safeguards the ecology of the planet. On climate, and there's been a bit of a climb down in the last 48 hours from the platform, in terms of climate and taking uh, money from uh, and giving subsidies to, I should say, the fossil fuel industry, and of course, the exclusion of Medicare for all. And it's just one of the visionaries on Medicare for all for decades. We just heard a few minutes ago, Michael Lighty. This has been work going on for decades and the exclusion of Medicare for all, especially in the time of the pandemic. For this audience, I don't need to belabor tying uh, healthcare coverage to employment. It's insane, it is inhumane. And so the fight for Medicare for all needs to go on. Uh, also not being uh, unwilling to challenge ongoing the military industrial complex. There's a mythology that somehow that's not a quote winning issue uh, at the ballots. Uh, in fact, the opposite is the case. It's not only the moral imperative to cut back on this insane military spending, it's not lowercase d defense. We shouldn't call it defense spending, it's military spending. And when we can't get 10% cut from the military budget, through a vote of Congress, that tells us how much work we have to do. There was a study that we profiled in uh, the Democratic Autopsy Report that uh, Roots Action put out a couple of years ago, an academic study that in the key swing states, such as Wisconsin, in the communities that had the most people who suffered, who lost their lives, who lost their limbs, who suffered psychologically from going to Iraq, from going to Afghanistan, Trump won those communities in part because those communities were sick and tired of endless war. And so there's no juxtaposition between a moral position and a politically tactical winning position. The military industrial complex and endless war just has to be challenged ongoing. 
And the last thing I really want to talk about, I know we're short on time, is this question of primarying Democrats in Congress. And I would say that we in the progressive movements overall, and this has not become such a problem in the last couple of years, but remains a problem, we're too nice to Democrats in Congress. We're too nice and deferential to members of Congress who call themselves progressive, members of Congress who are members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And we have more genuine allies now than we had a few years ago. We have the squad. We have several others who are reliable, who are relentless, who are heroes, who are heroic, who are dealing with enormous pressure from the Pelosi and Schumer machine, and they are stalwart, and they're brilliant, and they are champions. However, if you look at the membership of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, you can't count on most of them. That is a reality. And after November 3rd, I think it's essential for us individually and organizationally to analyze the voting records, to look, for instance, at every single member of Congress and maybe a special attention to the mislabeled progressives in the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus who voted against that 10% cut of the Pentagon at a time of pandemic and enormous economic suffering in this country. And I would say if you look at that 100 or so members of the CPC, the Progressive Caucus, and you see the very large number of them who voted against that 10% cut, that's a good start. In January of next year, to begin to call down that list, who are we going to identify and challenge with genuine progressives and primary in 2022? We need to do it. Roots Action stands ready to do it and work with other groups. Let's get it done. I am unmuted. And Norman, that is the PDA way. That is it. As simply stated as it could possibly be, and we're going to be doing that. We're setting up a mechanism where we're going to be tracking uh, the votes of all the Democratic caucus. Uh, and uh, earlier on, I spoke to my, unfortunately, uh, lost uh, comrade Antonio Gonzalez when he brought Rahul Grijalva into our offices back when I worked at Pacifica, Los Angeles. And he said, you know, He's from the Progressive Caucus. He was the chair of the caucus for Holgrahava. He's one of about the 12 or 20 of them who are really with us. It was that bad at that time. It's expanded, but it's it's not it's not the 90 that it, it looks like on paper or 100 looks like on paper. And it's certainly not the 230, whatever it is, 35 that are the Democratic Caucus, far from it. So thank you so much. And we're gonna go to Steve Cobble in a moment because we have this uh, video of Reverend Jackson being interviewed by John Nichols. And we've held out to the end. It's a really incredibly special thing that we've had. And we're gonna get to it in a moment, but and we're gonna put the whole thing up and I hope people stick with it and watch it. Uh, Reverend Jackson can be a little bit difficult to, to understand. Uh, he's suffering from Parkinson's disease, of course, folks, um, but he's as sharp and incisive as ever. But just for a quick final thought, um, you know, Nina, if you want to chime in, one final thought. Michael Lighty, if you want to chime in, one final thought. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, Michael Lighty, just a final thought. Uh, Thank you, Alan. I, I appreciate not following Nina, so I, I really do appreciate that. <laughs> Nina, you're so awesome. My God, I miss you. Um, the uh, Just quickly, I want to reiterate what Norman said and what you've been saying, Alan, others. 
we have got to really help create a disciplined progressive caucus of as large a number as we can that can leverage our progressive power on key congressional votes so that we're able to insist that, yes, we might ultimately support your health care reform, but you've got to mark up and have a floor vote on Medicare for all, for example. You've got to mark up and have a floor vote on the Green New Deal. We've got to have real fundamental reform of uh, mass incarceration and, and uh, the police, residential segregation, and so forth to really confront and end white supremacy. These are, We need that disciplined force in the House. I think progressives have to focus on influencing progressives and, and using that inside-outside strategy to build that that alliance that can no longer just go along with what the House leadership dictates, because after all, it's not the House leadership primarily, it's the donors. And when Biden-Harris raises tens of millions of dollars from big tech and Wall Street under the promise that nothing's going to fundamentally change, believe them. And that's what we have to confront, and we have to help our progressive allies in Congress do so. So thank you for including me. This has been awesome. It's great oh, to see you. Oh, it, it, honored to have you here, Michael. I once was watching, I don't know what it was, CNN or MSNBC, and um, Michael Leidy was on. I don't know when that was, Michael Leidy. It was, it was many years ago. I don't think I've even met you before. And um, he had hair. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> it was like, my word, who is this guy? Why have they let him on? <laughs> you know, he's making way too much sense. Um, Edith Turner, we all love you. Um, and uh, Susie Shannon and Tom Hartman and Donna Smith and everybody. But um, if, uh, unless anybody wants to throw in a final thought from that crowd, let me throw introduce everybody to Steve Cobble. Of course, all of us at PDA know Steve and, and Steve is our political director. And Steve um, is somebody who worked on the Jackson campaign, was instrumental, instrumental in PDA playing the role that we played. Uh, to date, our most important intervention in American politics, when Tim and Tim Carpenter and, and Steve Cobble and a group of people decided to, um, to, to, to launch the Run Bernie Run campaign. And Michael Leidy was probably involved in that. I don't know who all was there. I wasn't there yet, but I know Steve was central to it. And that has changed uh, and, and, and catapulted us into the phase of political history, American political history that we're in today. And this is what we are building upon and working to build upon as we choose to transform American society to such a degree that we lift this now still dominant national, unified national economy out of neoliberalism and into a new phase towards social democracy in the United States of America, more equitable, just society, one that's living in balance with the planet, et cetera. And that was really brought forward and catapulted forward by the Sanders campaigns in 2016 and 2020. And Steve Cobble played an instrumental role in getting that all started. So I'm very honored to introduce you, Steve Cobble. And I understand you're gonna be introducing uh, a video featuring your old friend, Jesse Jackson. So take it away, Steve. Thank you, Alan. Um, and I take it as an act of mercy that you Skip Nina there, and so I didn't have to follow her since I've had to do that before too. Well, I think Nina, Nina, uh, Nina as Mike Siegel read. said, that's a tough act. Well, Nina can try. Um, I, I can't. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know that. Yeah. Um, 
And I want to thank Mike Hirsch for his help in getting this done. I haven't seen this video. It just got done by John Nichols today. And um, and I just want to say one thing is, in one sense, you could argue that PDA started with the Rainbow Coalition because I met Tim Carpenter in Iowa back in 1987 when he and two of his three amigos got in a van and drove out to Iowa and started volunteering for the Jackson campaign and we couldn't get rid of him. And, uh, and he followed, he followed me down to Texas and I sent him out to Midland and Odessa and Amarillo. I thought that would get rid of him for sure. And instead, the next thing I knew, Reverend Jackson was doing an event in Midland, Texas, right before Super Tuesday, which made very little political sense. But once I learned how Tim operated, it made every sense in the world. Um, and of course, Tim and my friendship ended up in me managing to talk him into uh, giving up his private life for a year and becoming the deputy director of the Kucinich campaign. And out of that, that convention 16 years ago in Boston, where we realized that a former anti-war activist was going to run on his wrong vote in the Iraq war instead of taking the best parts of his life and taking that to America. And we thought maybe John Kerry might lose because he was doing the wrong thing there. And we started PDA, uh, I shouldn't say we, Tim really gets most of the credit for that. But that started 16 years ago in, at the end of August, at the end of July in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And uh, Reverend Jackson's been at every progress trying to get Reverend on video. And uh, I think we've got a tape coming up. I think almost all of you on this call know who John Nichols is, but the nation's John Nichols has been very good to PDA. We've sold his books for years, and sometimes we even give him part of the money back. Um, he's done events for us in Arizona, California, Wisconsin, New York, D.C., Virginia, Massachusetts, New Mexico, and I'm probably leaving out 15 states. Um, he's keynoted our Winslow meeting at least once and maybe a couple times. He's named PDA the Progressive Organization of the Year in the Nation. He writes like a dream. He remembers everything about politics and the state of Wisconsin. He helped PDA take the lead in drafting Bernie six years ago. He did a remarkable interview in Philadelphia four years ago with Reverend Jackson. Those of you who were there will probably never forget it because the air conditioner was both ridiculously noisy and pathetically ineffective. And so it was an intensely crowded room and the sweat was dripping off everybody and you couldn't hear Reverend Jackson and John was holding it all together despite that. It was really something. And of course, John literally wrote the book on stealing elections with Jews for Buchanan about the Florida theft. He wrote a book about democratic socialism. He wrote a book about the Wisconsin uprising. And most recently he wrote a book about Henry Wallace. Plus he did a couple forewords for Bernie Sanders books. And it's an honor for me to introduce Reverend Jackson. I want to take a second to talk about Reverend Jackson. So for he's going to be 79 in a couple of weeks. And for 60 years, he's been marching for the movement. He's been getting catching the early bus to get up every day to fight for justice. And uh, he didn't get his due 
during that time. And many, not just Reverend, many of the actual civil rights warriors had to sit there and listen to people who didn't take any risks tell us what a great man John Lewis was. John Lewis was a great man, but it should have been Harry Belafonte and Diane Nash and Jesse Jackson telling us what a great man he was because they'd paid their dues. Jesse worked with Dr. King. He ran for president twice. The second time he ran, he got 1,218.5 delegates. Um, that wasn't easy. I mean, you could ask Cory Booker and Kamala Harris how easy it was to be African-American and run for president and, and just rack up a bunch of votes. And Jesse did it at a different time with a lot less money. He won 13 states. He won Vermont, and Bernie Sanders endorsed him back then. He it registered millions of young people, many African-American young people to vote. He inspired millions more to be somebody. And a, there might be a podcast that has a similar name that I've heard about. Uh, he, uh, he, he kept Dr. King's dream alive to take the, change the ballot, the bullet into the ballot because he carried he registered the people that were going to cast those ballots during the 70s, during the 80s, during the Reagan year. And many of them were still around to vote when Barack Obama finally ran for president. And Barack Obama won, by the way, in the primary, partly because of a peace vote, which he got credit for because he appeared at a peace rally in Chicago where Jesse Jackson was the keynoter. And Jackson's speech was quite a bit better than Obama's, if you compare them. And the second thing is Jackson changed the rules, which allowed... Obama to defeat Hillary based on the kind of the proportional representation vote. He opened the door to Harold Washington, Carol Mosley Braun, to be the first African-American woman elected to the United States Senate from Illinois. Kamala Harris is the second. And so her history ties directly back to Reverend Jackson. I believe Jackson mentions in the video somewhere that she had a Jackson bumper sticker on her car back then. Um, So Reverend Jackson has been very good to Central. No one has worked harder for longer for peace and justice than Reverend has. And so without knowing what's on this and with the caveat that Reverend is 79, he does have Parkinson's, but he's still got a sharp brain. Um, I uh, let Mike Hirsch click the video and thank you for inviting me and thanks for having Progressive Central again, PDA. Uh, but let me ask you to uh, conclude, if you will, uh, with uh, anything additionally Democrats. struggles along the way that was once founded or that was once led by Tim Carpenter, who was a uh, an early and, and ardent supporter of your campaigns. Yeah, I can only say we win big elections. By small margin, tend to be a nation about 112,000 votes. You were there, you won unanimously. Now, uh, one vote per precinct, probably for about a million seven. Uh, Dole and Bush got more white votes than Clinton. He got more white, black, and brown. He won. Gore won but lost. Hillary Clinton won but lost. And so these elections at the, at the end uh, become very tight. Every vote, every household. Oh, the, the polls are that we're 
the picket area of the Post Office of America of Northern Military, picket them, put the mailers down for sale, picket, have local press conferences. Because uh, one of the central themes of the time is loss of post offices, rural areas, hamlets, mountains, Appalachia, urban America, uh, post office, small businesses, can't, not rich, can't get receivables, not get payables, for example. The sick can't get their medicine. The post office has such a wide range of services in all of us. I would say we're in Chicago, we're having a press conference on Friday. Early people to uh, mail's not for sale. Wherever you are today, and you're progressive, you're going to have local press. But your local press, local post, if it's, if it's just 10 of y'all watching, have a press every day from now to November 3rd. Every broadcast, my friends, like Lives Matter, the, the, the Floyd, George Floyd lynching, just some deep in our hearts. It made the whole world revolt against this. People realize that this is not just about blacks, it's about Portland. <laughs> it's about Seattle. The, the, the uh, police patrol, they don't control. If, you, if, you, if all police became nice guys overnight, they don't control banking, healthcare, wages, and education. So beyond civilized police, we must fight for healthcare as well, jobs that, that pay, decent housing and the world at peace rather than at war. We're allowed to work to the job. Love you guys. Hello, progressives. Let me thank you so much for, for taking the time. And there was one last thing that I did want to ask you as a, uh, I, you and I like talked about bad, 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 bad preacher. One last thing. It's always one last thing. With you. <laughs> yeah. We've done We've been talking for a long time, my friend. Uh, but, uh, one last thing is, we started here, you, you began talking about getting arrested as a young man uh, back in 1960. You see a, a whole new generation of young activists out in the streets today um, with Black Lives Matter uh, and, and calling for addressing systemic racism, issues that, that you've touched on throughout your career. You must be inspired by these movements that are in the streets. I mean, you know, I think much of the progress has come to athletics. When, when, when Clemson plays Alabama, the big game in California, when I was in high school in 59, Harvard began with Clemson, that with federal guards, and along with Lucy, Alabama. Now, 100,000 people, uniform color, not skin color, direction, not complexion. We were really learning really how to live together. But to see uh, Denver, Less than ten percent black black mayor, uh, San Francisco less than five percent black black mayor female mayor. Now the king never saw a mayor a black mayor in Atlanta Georgia or Washington D.C. for example. Well, we we met some time ago, John. We had black mayor in Montgomery Alabama, and Selma, and Birmingham, and Richmond. These are Confederate capitals. So while. Trump has controlled the numerator and the, and the press narrative. The, 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 the denominator for justice has kept moving. We've not stopped fighting. We have 60 blacks in the Congress now, four, four Latinos in the Congress now, 20 Native Americans, Asian Americans, two Native Americans. So we're winning every day. We, we won 2016, 
So stay in the streets and go to the polls and uh, keep active. Reverend Jackson, thank you so much for taking time to talk with, uh, with me and with also with all of the folks who are listening in from Progressive Democrats of America. Again, uh, thanks for having us, and we really do appreciate uh, the, the chance to have this conversation. Love you, John. Love you too, my friend.